the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, David asked Saul to stop chasing him because he's no threat, and Saul finally agrees. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 9. Once again, that's 1 Samuel chapter 26, Verse 9. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 26. This chapter is very similar to chapter 24. So the question, of course, should be, well, since we've already kind of heard that story, why is this one included? Well, there are some important differences in these two chapters, and they give us an indication of David's changed heart. David, if you remember last time, he was trying to reconcile with Saul. He was trying to fix the situation. But this time we're going to find out he just wants Saul to leave him alone. And David said to Abishai something very interesting. He didn't say don't kill him. He said, do not destroy him. It's a Hebrew phrase, altasketh. Altasketh. What's interesting about it and why I bring it up is there are three psalms that have the title, Altasketh, in front of it, do not destroy. All of those psalms refer to the time that Saul hunted David, all three of them. Now, if you read those psalms, they are not merciful psalms. That's the one where David asked God to break their teeth, cut their tongues in half. Yeah, it's not a merciful psalm. But they repeat a principle that David lived by in his treatment of Saul. God, you need to deal with my enemies because I won't take matters into my own hands. All three Psalms say. It's fascinating because if you read it and you see the, like most modern English translations will say, Altashketh, and then they'll say, do not destroy underneath that. And most of the time we read it is, oh, David's asking God not to let him be destroyed. No, 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 no. David is writing these songs. He's reminding himself, don't kill him. I know everything within you wants to, but don't. That would be a mistake. That would be wrong. He explains why. For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless means to go unpunished or to be innocent. Listen, we started talking about it, that there are bits of David's life that are cracking right now beneath the weight of his struggles. David is struggling right now. This is not a high note in David's life. This is a struggling time in David's life. But there is a sense when you see him writing these three Psalms, you see his response to Abishai here, that David knows if he kills Saul, 
he'll cross a line where he'll never be the same man. He knows if he does this, he'll never be the same man. And you know what? For all that David is struggling with his situation, that concerned him more than being a fugitive. And thus, he entrusts the Lord to deal with Saul. Verse 10, David said, furthermore, I love this. They're in the middle of an enemy camp and they're just having a conversation. Shows you how asleep these guys are. They're just out. He says, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall smite him or his day shall come to die or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. As true as God is alive, which there's no more true thing out there. He says, something will happen to Saul. We won't be fugitives forever, nephew. God will keep his promises to me. Now, this response of David does beg a question. Why in the world are you risking your life coming down here then? If it's not to kill Saul, if it's not to stop the enemy who's come after you, why are you here, David? (laughs) What is your plan? Well, verse 11, he says, but, he can't do that for me, but I pray you, you can do this for me. Please do this for me, Abishai. Take thou now the spear that is at his bolster and the cruise of water, and then let us go. Can you fetch that spear and grab his jug of water that's down there by him too? And then let's skedaddle. And so it says, so David took the spear. David did not. It's just saying he took it from Abishai. He didn't take it from Saul. Took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster and they got them away. And no man saw it. Nor knew it, neither awaked, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. This was a supernaturally induced state of heavy sleep. And that explains why David can just walk into the camp. Now, this isn't just a miracle for David. It's also a mercy of God to Saul. So how is it a mercy of God that he, Saul was at David's mercy? No, it's a mercy of God to Saul because when Saul woke up, he would know that there was no rational explanation for elite soldiers and trained guards to all fall asleep at the same time. He would know that God was trying to get his attention, which is another sad indictment of Saul's stubborn heart. Can I plead with you? If God is putting speed bumps on your road that you're on right now, please, please don't ignore them. Things didn't have to end the way they did for Saul. And certainly if God's putting speed bumps on your path, then it's so you'll turn around and take a different one. Now, we still don't know why David risks his life to get Saul's spear and his water bottle. Why? Well, verse 13 will inform us. It says, then David, verse 13, went over to the other side, and he stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great space being between them. And David cried to the people and to Abner, the son of Mer, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner? And Abner answered and said, Who art thou that cries to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a valiant man? Who is like unto you in Israel? Wherefore, why then have you not kept the Lord your king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing is not good that you have done. As the Lord lives, you are worthy to die because you have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king, you think I'm lying? See now where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his bolster. Now, a couple things to point off before we get to David's accusation. David, this time, gets to the safety of the next hill. It mentions very clearly multiple times, he went afar off and a great space is between him and Saul's encampment now. 
That is radically different from the last time that David confronted Saul. Last time, Saul goes into the cave, does his business. David cuts the thing off his robe, and then he follows Saul right out of the cave. They are literally not very far apart, maybe eight, 10 feet apart. And that's when David falls on his face, bows down, and pleads with his father-in-law, his king, and his lord. He tries to reconcile with him. But that is not the case this time. Last time, David reached out to Saul in the hopes of convincing Saul he meant him no harm. But that is not David's intent this time. David has given up hoping that he and Saul could ever be reconciled. And so he keeps this great space between him, and he has a message he wants to communicate to the king. And so he calls out and he says to Abner, the son of Mer, do you not answer me, Abner? Do you have no reply? Apparently David had been shouting for a while to Saul from that hill. Finally, they start waking up and Abner's the first one to answer. And finally he says, who are you that cries to the king? Probably because of the distance or just the grogginess, who knows? I don't know why, he just didn't know who was talking. And what's interesting is instead of identifying himself, David calls out Abner for his lax guard. David said to Abner, are you not a valiant man? The phrase there means, literally in the Hebrew, it means, are you not supposed to be some great warrior? Who is like you in Israel? You're the captain of the host. Why then have you not kept? Why have you not guarded the Lord your king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king, your Lord. David, this is clever. David shows how easy it is to twist the facts to create a false narrative. To accuse someone of something absurd because that's how you want to see it. And he says, see, see now where the king's spear is in the cruise of water that was at his bolster. It's right here. I snuck in. I got facts to prove. I got evidence that proves you should be executed as an unfaithful servant to Saul. You're a traitor. And why does David do this? Because these were the same type of arguments people were making against him. They would say, well, if David's innocent, why is he on the run? If he's loyal, why isn't he fighting by Saul's side? It's crazy what you can do with a little bit of evidence, with a few facts twisted. Our day and age isn't the only one with twisted facts and false narratives. It's been going on since sin entered the world. Remember that interesting fellow in the book of Genesis chapter 4? It just mentions it real quick. His name's Lamech, and he took multiple wives. And then Lamech, he gets into a fight with somebody and kills him, and he comes home and tells his wife, he goes, here now, wives. He goes, Cain killed someone, and he was marked that if anyone killed him, he'd be avenged. So in the same way, if these people try to take revenge on me for killing this guy, they'll be judged sevenfold. Really? We don't even know what happened. We don't even know if you were right. We don't know if you're, I mean, you know, he's twisting everything of what happened that night. Whatever the reason was, he killed this guy. People have been taking facts and twisting them and making false narratives all throughout history. May I please encourage you, don't become a part of that. Don't let men make your heart grow cold. Listen, we're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to love the lost. And if that fails, you're called to love your enemies. We have clear marching orders from God that aren't up for debate on this issue. So let's be faithful disciples of Jesus and not be faithful disciples of information specialists. Now, while Abner could not figure out who was speaking, Saul knew right away who was speaking. Verse 17, and Saul recognized David's voice. And he said, is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, 
It is my voice, my Lord, O King. The last time David saw Saul and he replied, he said, my Lord, my King, and my Father. Not this time. David's language throughout this entire chapter is purely that of a liege to his Lord. There is no personal touch anymore. And he says to Saul, verse 18, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? Not his son-in-law, but after his servant. What have I done? What evil's in my hand? Why are you hunting me again? I thought we had this settled in our last meeting. Have I done some new evil? Have you discovered new, some new machination of mine against you? And because there is no new charge Saul can level against David, he says nothing. And thus, David now finally proceeds with his plan. Verse 19. Now, therefore, I pray you. You got nothing? All right. Now, therefore, I pray you. Since I've done no new wrong against you, please listen to my words. Let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. Really listen, Saul. Don't dismiss what I'm about to say because it's important. If the Lord have stirred you up against me, well, then let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, then cursed be they before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. David conceives two possible reasons that Saul has returned to hunt him down. Since there's no new charge against David, there's nothing new that David's done wrong in the kingdom, he perceives that there can only be two reasons you've come back out to hunt me after our last agreement. He says, first off, perhaps I've done something wrong and God sent you down. And if God sent you down here to punish me, then please know I'll gladly repent and make the prescribed offering in the law. You can go home. Just tell me what it is, and I'll make the appropriate offering, and I'll fix it. But, but if it's not the Lord that sent you down. If men's accusations have stirred you to take action against me, oh, David says, cursed be they before the Lord. I call on the Lord to do harm to them right now for such wicked lies, is what he's saying. I pray God smite them with something, a really bad itch. Something. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, that's kind of dramatic, David. But what David's trying to say is, if, that, if it's because men have accused me of something, then cursed be they because they have really wronged me. What they have done to me is awful. Saul, you and these other men who have something against me are leaving me no choice but to leave my homeland, the land God gave me for an inheritance, the only place that I can obediently worship him. You're forcing my hand to leave. Now, I don't know what it's like to be a fugitive. Most of us probably don't. I hope none of you have ever had to live through that. But most of us know what it's like to be falsely accused. And man, when that happens, doesn't it make you feel like your options are so limited? Like, I mean, what do you do? I mean, you blast them. That, like, I, you know, I can blast them. And then you think, oh, I might lose my job, you know? I mean, all these things happen. You're like, you feel like you're just crushed in this little tiny space with nowhere to move because all the different pathways you might take that they're going to turn out bad. The hardest part for me when I'm wronged is getting out of my own head. The truth is, David didn't have to leave the promised land. You get wronged at work, you get falsely accused, I, I, I have no other choice but to leave the company. And it's like, if you just settle down for a minute, that's not the only choice, right? 
Not the only choice. Sometimes I'll come to Bev and God bless her and I'll be all up in a roar about something and that's all I got to do. I just be like, let's take a deep breath. That's not the only option you have. Yes, it is. It's the only option I have. David doesn't have to leave the promised land. In fact, every time he leaves the promised land, God tells him to go back, even though the situation hasn't gotten any better. While David's accusation is legitimate, it shows that he sees this situation as unfixable. He doesn't even seem to want reconciliation anymore. And so he's resorted to blaming others for leaving him with only bad options. The problem when you do that is that's not biblical. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it tells us that God always makes a path for us. It says, there is no temptation taken you. In other words, you've never experienced any type of testing or trial or difficulty except such as is common demand. In other words, if you're going through something, somebody else has gone through it before you, and there's likely somebody else going through it right now somewhere in the world. And so instead of thinking, no one's ever been here before, there's no solution to this, I'm done for Remember that God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are capable. Wait a second. Okay, I hear this quoted all the time. God will give you anything more than you can handle. That's a lie. That is not biblical. God gives me stuff I can't handle all the time. I can't handle anything. That's biblical. Jesus said, without me, you can do few things? No thing. Nothing. But Paul also said, I can do how many things through Christ who strengthens me? All things. So when we talk about here this idea that he will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, the word there, it means to have the power to do something. We always have Christ, who can through us do all these things. What he's saying here is not that I'll never give you anything you can't handle. If that's your mindset, you're probably confused because you're probably going through things that are too much for you to handle. But he always makes a power available to us for everything he allows us to go through. That's what he's saying. And in addition to that, it says this, but he will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. So David, is what you're going through extremely difficult? You bet. But David had a way of escape. There was a power available to him, a power that he'd been using already for so many years. And it was trusting in the Lord while on the move in the promised land. The problem isn't that that's not an option still. The problem is is that David's weary of that option. He doesn't want to do that anymore. And thus, David comes to his purpose for sneaking into the camp and taking Saul's stuff. Not reconciliation, but a word from the 80s, a detente. He just wants a truce. Verse 20, now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one does hunt a partridge in the mountains. David says, let not my blood fall to the ground. Don't chase me out of the land so that I die in the land of my enemies. Let me stay here and leave me be. I'm no threat to you and you know it. Who is the king come out to chase? King of Israel. You're the king of Israel, this big thing. You come out to chase a flea. 
All right, I, have, I chase some bugs every once in a while at the house, but I'm not, I don't chase fleas. Can't see them. I can barely see the mosquito in front of me. You're chasing a flea. It's like one man hunting a partridge in the mountains. Now, partridge, the bird that's being referred to here, these are stout-bodied game birds, and they, they don't fly very far. In fact, when they have to fly, they tire very easily. And so what they would do is they would put up these nets where the birds, they corral the birds, and so they're flying back and forth between these nets, and they get so tired, they have to land. And when they land, you got a bunch of people that run out and club them, and then you have lunch. Now, the idea is you try to get them in large groups because when you're trying to corral them, obviously some get free. You don't ever do that with one partridge. And you certainly don't chase one all the way into the mountains. Basically, what David's saying is, Saul, you've got far bigger problems than me. Saul, I'm not asking to come home. I just want you to leave me alone. Stop chasing me. Whether it's a marriage or a family relationship, or a friendship. It's always sad when someone gives up on a relationship. When hope is lost for any path forward. Christians are not supposed to be like this, because Jesus isn't like this. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 7 and 8, it says, Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's God's love for us. And we are to emulate our Savior. Now, David's words this time, they really hit Saul. And they actually move Saul so far as to make a commitment that he won't break this time. Look at verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son, David. I wish return there meant return with me. I wish that's what it meant, but it doesn't. It means you're free to go. He says, David, it was wrong for me to come out here again. You're right. You're free to go. Return. And again, he calls him my son, David. Saul owns David as his son, though he won't go the next step to reconcile. And so what he tells David, he says, you're free to go for I will do you no more harm because my soul was precious in your eyes this day. He tells David no more evil, no more false accusations, no more hunts. And you know what? Saul will never hunt David again. In fact, these two will never see one another again. And why does Saul agree to David's terms? I think it finally sunk into him that David valued his life. He valued his position as king. He says, because my soul was precious in your eyes this day. It means, precious means to be of high value, something to be respected. And has that truth found some firm ground in Saul's heart? I think probably for the first time. He actually verbalizes his disgust at his own behavior, not just here, but over the years. He says, behold. Behold means I want everyone to pay attention to what I'm about to say. This isn't just for David. This is for everybody to hear. He says, I have played the fool, and I have erred exceedingly. The phrase erred exceedingly, it means to go so very far astray. If you've ever found yourself very, very far astray, 
You understand what Saul is experiencing right now. There are several very sad moments toward the end of Saul's life. Moments where it seems like he's this close to coming back. This is one of them. They're sad because he realizes how lost he is. But they're doubly sad because he still doesn't turn around and come back to the Lord. It's never fun, but it's good to be slapped into your senses again like the prodigal son, right? When he's in the muck and the mire and he goes, what am I doing here? I love what Jesus, as he tells the parable, he says, and when he came to himself, he finally came to his senses again. He finally started thinking like a rational human being again. It's good to realize that you're in a place you have no business being. But realizing you're in a place that you have no business being is not repentance. Realizing you're in a place you have no business being is simply the mercy and kindness of God seeking to lead you to repentance. Are you far away from where you should be right now? If so, don't see your relationship with God as irreconcilable. The only irreconcilable difference you can have with the Lord is unbelief. If you just never trust him. And so if you're away, come home. Come to Jesus. The Bible says he is meek and lowly of heart, and he longs to give you rest for your soul. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy or your own condemning heart that's too late to turn around. Because if you're still breathing, it's not. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.